Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. God, the promise that you've made to your people, starting with Abraham, through the people of Israel, most clearly expressed in Jesus, and then through his spirit in us, your church. The promise you've made is that in you is all we need. That when we turn our hearts and the desires of our hearts, the failures of our hearts, the insecurities of our hearts, the joys, the sorrows of our hearts, when we turn all of who we are to you and offer it up to you, we find not condemnation, but we find love. We find healing. We find truth. We find a father who is like a friend. We find you, God, and that your love for us and our relationship enables us to experience abundant life, to experience joy that is not based on our circumstances, to experience a peace and a contentment that passes any sort of rational understanding of it, to experience who you are and to start tasting the kingdom that is coming, to start tasting it now here. And so, Lord, as we jump into today's topic, my prayer is that every person in this room, despite what they may think about you or believe about you, despite the the terms they're on in their relationship with you, that they would get a sense even right now that they're not here on accident, they're here on purpose, that there is a, a force called love who is driving them and that your desire is not for their harm, but for their good. So would even right now, would they open up their hearts to receive from you what you have for them today? We love you. We're grateful. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you're with us for the first time, we have been in this series uh, throughout February and March that we are calling Lies We Love and How They're Killing Us. Uh, We're examining our relationships and we're essentially making the case that uh, all life is the sum of our relationships. That's that's all it is. And we're receiving advice from our society, whether we know it or not, that is uh, uh, informing us about the best way to be in relationships, whether it's with our colleagues or our significant others or our children or our siblings, It, it doesn't matter. But it's informing us of how we should be in relationship And we're basically holding that up next to what God says throughout the Bible and asking, well, is it working? Which one is better? Is there one that actually leads to healthier relationships or not? Spoiler, we think God's way is better and will lead to healthier relationships. Um, But today, we've been doing this for the last couple weeks, and today we actually want to press pause. We're not going to look at any specific lie. Instead, we're going to take a step back and we're going to remind ourselves why we're in this series. I don't know if you're like me, but um, sometimes I can get so into the weeds of something that I can forget why I even started it in the first place. 
And if any of you guys, and I would assume it's most of us in this room, have pursued a craft, whether it's sports or whether it's music or whether it's some sort of artistic craft or, you know, writing or whatever, uh, it takes a lot of skill and it takes a lot of practice. I was a baseball player growing up. And there would be some weeks where, like, I would spend the entire week of practice just focusing on elbow rotation, right? That's all I'm focusing on, elbow rotation. So by the time I get to Friday, I'm like, I hate my elbow. My elbow is the worst part of my body. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, you're just so in it. You're like, you lose the taste for it. You're like, what am I doing? And then it's in those moments where I need to leave the elbow rotation drills and go back into the batting cage and take some swings and hit some nice, sweet dingers. You know what I'm talking about, hitting some dingers? Yeah. And then you connect on one, you hear the sound of that wood, and you're like, oh, that's why I'm doing this. Let me go back to the elbow rotations. That's kind of what we're doing today, right? We, are, we have been focusing on our relationships. We have been focusing on what society says about our relationships and God's correction. And we're taking a step back and saying, why are we doing this? Let's remind ourselves of why we're focusing on this and what is at stake in our relationships. There was an Instagram account that went viral last year. Maybe you heard of it. It's called Preachers in Sneakers. Anyone heard of Preachers in Sneakers? Yes, the laughs in the room. Uh, Preachers in Sneakers, and I think we have a photo of one. No disrespect to that pastor at all. It was just the one I pulled up. Uh, basically, the, this anonymous account uh, person, he put up photos um, that, that pastors around the country have, have um, put on their own Instagram accounts. He put them up uh, wearing expensive clothing, and then he put right beside it another photo of the resale value of that clothing. And essentially, it struck a chord in our country and exploded. It spread like wildfire. Now, there's something, it's never fair. It's never fair to just slap up two photos without context and just say, have at it. That's never fair. And yet, and yet something struck a nerve. There were critics on both sides of this, of why this was a good idea or why this was super destructive and unhelpful. There was something about representatives of Jesus in expensive clothing that polarized people that polarize. And, and just FYI, I chose my shoes very carefully today, <laughs> all right? I decided to go with the classic Clark look, $72 from DSW. <laughs> and maybe you're thinking here, you're, you're sitting here thinking, oh, what does this have to do with my relationships, preachers and sneakers? A lot, in fact, a lot, more than you realize. Our passage today, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians, <clears throat> which is the, uh, most scholars say, is the oldest book in the New Testament. Paul has started a church in Thessalonica. He's left, and now he's writing back to them around mid to late 40s AD. And so we're going to read uh, from the second chapter, early on in the letter, verses 1 through 8. And this is what we see. You know, brothers and sisters that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make 
does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we have never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. Now, on first reading, Paul seems a little on the defense here, doesn't he? He seems a little defensive. He's like, guys, you remember, we didn't come to you with, you know, a pretext for greed. We didn't come with words of flattery. He's kind of on the defense, reminding the Thessalonians about their relationship. Like the other day, Anna and I were walking um, uh, to our apartment. We passed a bodega with flowers, and she looked up at me quite, you know, just matter-of-factly. And she was like, you know, you never buy me flowers. And I'm like, baby, how could you say that? I buy you flowers all the time. You know, I was on the defense, and she's like, tell me the last time, which is such an unfair question to have you name an example in the moment. And I was like, uh, October or something? I buy you flowers. Baby, come on, you know I buy you flowers, you know? I was kind of on the defense, and I was like trying to spout off all the things that I've done. Like, hey, remember that one time when I, when I found a daisy at Prospect Park and I picked it for you? Remember that? Right? Like I'm sort of listing out these things to remind her of my love, to remind her of our relationship. It feels like that. It feels like Paul's got caught a little bit. And we want to examine, is that true? What is going on? Well, like I said earlier, 1 Thessalonians, most scholars say, is the earliest book of the New Testament. So it's mid-40s, mid to late 40s, only 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus. 10 to 15 from um, Jesus' walking to earth, his resurrection, his ascension, the giving of the Spirit, and now like the first churches are starting to populate in the Roman Empire. But here's the thing, the, the message of Jesus, though it means, like it, it's, it's really fascinating, the message of Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus, means the maximum amount of good things for the most amount of people. It's a message of love and truth and connection and peace and, and balance, socioeconomic balance. It's a message where that really means great things. The issue, though, is it comes at a steep cost because if I ascribe to this kingdom, if I say that Jesus is my Lord, then that means all the other lords of our world are not. That means that my emperor is not my Lord. That means that my country is not my Lord. That means that my cultural group is not my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And so you find this, uh, the, that, that as Christianity started to spread, uh, though some people really latched onto it because they saw the truth and the power in it, a lot of people did not like it. And in fact, in the book of Acts, it details, Luke details, when Paul brings the gospel to Thessalonica, and it was not good. Uh, there was a mob that was started that basically threw him out, beat him up and threw him out. And essentially their claim was, this man is turning the world upside down. 
which they were more true than they realized. But essentially what we see is that there's a lot of hardships. There's a lot of strains on the Thessalonican people. There's, there's, there's dissonance in their relationship from Paul. There's persecutions and tensions, both from outside the, the people of faith and also inside. The adherents uh, uh, to Rome, the Roman people who were not Christians, they didn't like that Christians were now unable to be controlled. They weren't participating in some of the political festivals. Their money were going, was going to different sources now. So they weren't able to be controlled anymore. And, and even from those inside the faith, you found from the very start that different preachers with different angles were coming along. Two most notably, called the Gnostics, Gnosticism, which means secret knowledge, which in essence was sort of this mystery cult that said you had to be initiated into the secret knowledge of God and not everyone you know, had that knowledge. It was really exclusive. It was just trying to create hierarchy and popularity. And then also uh, what were known as the Judaizers, who they would come to these churches from Jerusalem and Judea, and they would say, hey, you can follow Jesus. You just have to be circumcised and become a full Jew and follow the law of Moses. So you have these different versions of the gospel. And the, the Thessalonian people, they're, they're sitting there like, what is true? They're feeling a lot of stress, a lot of tension. They're probably writing to Paul saying, hey, what's going on? And Paul is also, he's built this relationship with them. He's brought the gospel and, and he's trying to sort of, you know, talk to them as well and remind them of their relationship. Paul's relationship with the Thessalonian church is experiencing testing and discomforts and stress. Guys, why are we doing this series on our relationships? Because your relationships will, not might, but will experience trials and pressures and stressors and hardships. It's not a question of if, it's just when they're going to come and how long they're going to remain. It will happen. And what you have to remember is that the strength and the truth and the grace of your relationships is communicating the truth of the gospel message to the world. If we put back up that preachers and sneakers photo, and here's the, the turn, you are those preachers. You are communicating something about Jesus to the world, but you're doing it within a certain garb, a certain clothing of your relationships. And people are looking at you and wondering, huh, does it align or does it polarize? Would Jesus do it that way? Would he wear that jacket? Or does it bring up more questions? God forgives, but I hold grudges. Something isn't right. God is honest and truthful, but I can be very deceptive in my relationships. God is present and always available, and yet I can withdraw myself, especially when stress comes. See, that's what we're talking about, and this is why we're focusing on relationships, because hardships will come. And we need to be reminded of certain things about God, about our relationships, and about what is at stake in them. And when the hardships have come to the Thessalonian people, we see Paul 
doing certain things in this passage that God would do for us and that would be helpful for all of us. Now here's a couple things about hardships. The first thing hardships do is that hardships make you forget everything you've learned. (laughs) Uh, Mike Tyson said it best. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Right? It is the truth. I got a plan. I'm ready for my relationship. I'm going to have a good conversation. And then something happens and it just punches me in the face. And I I, I just start swinging. I just start swinging. Right? Everyone's got a plan so you get punched in the face. When hardships come, you're going to forget everything you've learned. Last fall, I actually uh, I signed up for an improv class because I wanted to. <laughs> and because um, I know you were wondering, why did you sign up for an improv class? Anyway. Um, and uh, at the very end, and it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. It was my first time doing improv. And at the very end, we had like a, like a showcase, right, where we could invite our friends. Of course, none of you were invited. Um, because I'm not letting you see that, Uh, and I got to come, but it was really interesting, um, because we had this showcase, there were only like 10 people in the room, our closest friends, but you know, we thought it was like, whose line is it anyway, we were so nervous, and um, one of the main things, one of the main things they taught is when you show up in an improv scene, don't ask questions, right, because that doesn't give your partner anything, Uh, you rather make a statement, give them knowledge, give them information that they can say yes and to, So don't ask questions. All eight weeks of learning, don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. Uh, We do our first game on the the showcase. And literally, I'm like watching. I'm sort of getting an idea, getting a character in my head. And I come into the scene, and I go, what's up, Mike? What you doing? I just like ask a question. (laughs) And then I'm like, what What did I just do? And then he proceeded to ask me a question back. And the entire showcase was so bad. (laughs) It was terrible. Everything we learned was just out of our brains. Why? Because the techniques weren't natural yet. They weren't inside of us. When hardships come in your relationship, the question is, is God's version of relationships inside of you yet? Probably not. Probably not fully, not deeply. Like we talked about how romantic relationships won't make you whole. We talked about that, that only one relationship will give you that sense of enoughness and wholeness, and that is with God. But the first time that you feel deeply lonely, whether you're single or married, because as we know, loneliness comes for all of us. The first time we realize that, that, that our partner or our lack of a partner is making us feel so lonely, and that flies out of our brain, will we remember it? and turn on worship music or take a walk and pour out our heart to God and say, God, you're the only one who makes me whole? Because you're gonna be tempted to forget. We know that love doesn't mean agreeing with you, but when it's really time to enter into that conversation with a friend, will you still say, I'm gonna challenge you, but I'm not going anywhere, I'm staying right here with you? Or will you back away and stay quiet? We know that our emotions are all over the place. But what will we do when they really start fluctuating? Will we remember to go to the body of Jesus, to trust his story and not what our emotions fully say? Will we bring them into conversation? See, that's the thing, guys. Hardships will come on your relationships and you're gonna be tempted to forget everything God has taught you, which is why you see Paul do something. He uses a word multiple times in this passage. It's the Greek word oidata, oidata which just means you know. 
you know, or you remember. He's, he's trying to say, hey, you know how we acted among you. You remember that our coming to you was not in vain. You know, you remember that we were mistreated in Philippi. You know that we didn't come to you with flattering words or a pretext for greed. He's asking them to remember. When hardship sends you back to society's advice, because that is your default condition. Why? Because society's advice makes the most amount of sense to our natural fallen nature. It's simply to isolate ourselves and to go into self-preservation mode. That's society's advice in our relationships, by and large. Go into self-preservation mode. Do what's best for yourself. And that's natural for all of us. It's unnatural, but we know it leads to the maximum amount of flourishing to trust God and to actually push into him and into loving one another, to be sacrificial for each other. But when hardships come, Paul is saying, oidata, no, 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 you know the truth. You remember what God has said to you. As he writes in another letter, when I wrong you and my heart condemns me, will I remember that God is greater than my heart? Will I trust him? Because stressors will make you forget, but you remember who he is. The second thing hardships will do when they come in your relationships is they're gonna make you pull back Isolate yourself and distrust everyone. That's your default. Your default is to isolate your heart. And we isolate our hearts from relationships in all sorts of ways. Some of us do it with substances. Some of us, when the relationship becomes hard and stressful, what do we do? We numb ourselves with alcohol um, or Netflix or social media. We escape. We use substances to isolate ourselves from the relationship. Some of us, when the relationship gets hard and it's stressful, we actually pour ourselves into more relationships, but superficial ones. You know what I'm talking about? When, when this relationship is getting too deep and too stressful and it's complex and we're not getting anywhere and, and it's hard, what we start doing is we start reaching out to other people and we just want shallow conversations, shallow relationships. Some of us, when we isolate ourselves by becoming mean toward our partner, whoever it is. Some of us reject the other person and actually leave. We isolate by literally isolating ourselves. Some of us find new friends. Some of us shut down. It's not if, but when. But when stress comes to your relationship, you're gonna see, you're gonna feel your heart try to isolate itself, try to pull back, to disconnect from the person, whoever they are to disconnect, not if, but when. And that's natural for us because that is the essence of sin. That word is, is really big, it's been used all sorts of ways. Sin in the Greek means to fall short, to miss the perfect mark. And the perfect mark of God is pure love. Love as pure, perfect relationship. We miss the mark of complete intimacy, complete relationship. So think about that. If we are missing the mark of complete relationship, then what are we doing? We're isolating ourselves. We're alone. Sin is the great separation. All the ways that our heart is separated from God and separated from one another. Interestingly enough, even though in the Middle Ages, um, hell was described as, you know, um, sort of this fiery place, if you look 
through different imagery of hell, hell is described often as pure isolation. And even in Dante's Inferno, when you get to the lowest level of hell, the seventh, I think it's the seventh level, where Lucifer is there, he's half frozen in a block of ice. It's not fire, it's ice. Because he is utterly separated from the relationship with God and with others. Sin, at its core, at its pure essence, is pure isolation, pure aloneness. And that's our default. When hardships come, your default will be to pull back, to isolate. But what does Paul do? He writes, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Paul lists out how they did not come. He's saying we didn't come impurely, not trying to trick you or please you or garner your praise or flatter you or put on a mask. And then you realize he hasn't been caught Rather, he's trying to differentiate himself from the others who have come with Jesus' name in their mouths. They're starting, they're, they're, they're nervous. They're distrusting him because he came talking about Jesus, but these other people also came talking about Jesus, but they also looked a little differently. They weren't doing it the same way he did. And Paul says that. He goes, remember our relationship. Remember how I came to you. Remember how I acted among you. I haven't been caught. You're grouping me in. Don't isolate from me. Don't pull back. Remember how I came. And then when we think about it, we do this all the time, don't we? Someone hurts you. And then suddenly you can't trust others who are like them. And it's not the other people's fault. You're projecting onto them a past hurt. I was stared at a lot because of my golden heart syndrome and teased. And so when I caught people staring, my, my, my default assumption is they're staring to, te- to tease at me. I didn't give them the benefit of the doubt at all. That's just what we do. Your parents abandon you, so you distrust all authority figures. But these hardships, these stressors, they will cause you to isolate and assume the worst in people, and vice versa. And when you get confused in your relationships, when you're wondering who's genuine and who's false, who to trust and who not to trust, remember the person's actions. Remember how God did not come to you this way with impurity or deception or pretext looking for your flattery. Instead, he came to you in humility and in kindness and in sacrifice. Remember their actions and don't isolate but push in. And that brings us to the final and most important point. The reason why we're focusing on our relationships, because hardships will come. They will cause you to forget everything God has said, and they will cause you to isolate yourself from God and others. And it's imperative that we remember that and not do it, but push back into God, because there is a lot at stake in our relationships. We're focusing on relationships, friends, Because relationships reveal the powerful truth of God's gospel. They reveal, our relationships reveal the truth 
of Jesus' love, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. After Paul lists all the ways he did not come to the Thessalonians, then he reminds them how he did. This is what he says. Instead, we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. There's a principle in communication called the 55-38-7 rule. You've probably heard of this or some version of this. It's a theory, but in essence, the theory goes like this. 55% of your communication, 55% is body language. 38% of what you're communicating is your tone of voice. And only 7% of what you're trying to communicate to someone are the actual words you say. 55% of what someone hears from you is your body language. 38% is how you say it. And only 7% is what you actually say. Guys, in your relationships, it's not just the words you use, it's how you communicate them through your body and your tone of voice. It's not just saying, I love you. It's buying flowers. It's doing dishes. It's not responding with anger or retaliation or isolating or selfish, sharp words. It's not just saying things. Does my life communicate? that I would sacrifice myself for you. It's not just saying, I forgive you. It's a life that literally doesn't hold a grudge afterward or bring it back up over and over again, demonstrating you don't forgive them. It's not just saying, I'll be patient with you. It's living in a way that allows for mistakes and room for growth. As it's been said, it's so true. The medium is the message. It's not just the words we use, it's how they're communicated. So our witness, our witness to our friends that God has come in the flesh, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, is only 7% based on the words we use, which hopefully gives you guys some comfort. Because when I talk to you, many of you say, I'm scared to talk about Jesus because I don't know what to say. You don't need to say anything. Just live the life that he has given us to live and that will speak 93%. Then bring them to me and I'll talk the other 7%, all right? 93% of communicating how good God is, the truth of God, is in the life you live. Does it match the words of Jesus? The medium is the message. Do we live a life? Do our relationships embody this growing sense of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and self-control. And without question, when you study the spread of Christianity across the globe, without question, undeniably, in studies of why people have given their lives and have seen the truth and have become followers of Jesus, it's because the message of God's love was fully aligned by the relationship of the person who communicated it. And even in the first centuries, why did Christianity continue to spread? Even though it had so many 
persecutors. It is most amply summed up by Tertullian, who was a Roman historian who became a Christian in the second century. He was at the the Colosseum one day. I think I've shared this before. He was at the Colosseum, and they were sacrificing Christians on that day for sport. They were sacrificing Christians. And he was just so confused because these Christians who were being sacrificed, the lions and all sorts of brutality, they were actually praying for one another and praying for the people in the stands. They weren't cursing. They weren't, they weren't embittered. They were praying. And Tertullian, as he's watching, he hears someone beside him shout out, look how they love one another. They were stunned because the message of God's sacrificial love matched up with a life and a, and a willingness to die without cursing on their lips, but blessing. Saying this love of God is better than life or death. It's better than anything. I will go unto death with blessing for you. Forgive them. It's not, it's not their fault. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus said that on the cross. Our relationships communicate the love of God to the world. And when we think about this, guys, and when we look at Paul's language, we realize Paul didn't get that from himself. He didn't think of that himself. He's just simply, as he says often in his letters, be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. He's simply an imitator of Christ. Because in verse 7 he says, when we came to you, we were gentle among you. The word for gentle is napios in the Greek, which means an infant. It's a noun. So he's saying, when we came, we were infants among you. As if to say, we were not seeking to coerce you or overpower you, but simply to love you vulnerably, placing ourselves into your hands. Because we loved you so much, Paul says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. The word for lives is psyche, suke, which means soul or existence. He's saying, we loved you so much, we didn't just bring you a message. We brought you our very selves. We brought you our very existence. And when you sort of pull back and think, well, who is Jesus? Jesus is God and the flesh. And how did God come when he wanted to deliver his message of love and liberation and truth and freedom for us? How did God come? Well, the word of God came as an infant, born vulnerably into the world, whose body language and tone of voice communicated the depths of God's humility, the depths of his sacrificial, vulnerable love. And even in the hardship of unjust treatment, even as though he was arrested and crucified on sham charges, he saw fit, Jesus did, to not just share with you the love of God through word, He didn't just give us a body of teaching, but he gave us his own body. Jesus didn't just give us, he didn't write a book down saying this is how much God loves you. Instead, he actually gave us his own body. The reason why we trust God's love, the truth communicated through Jesus is because his life, his relationships with his disciples and with the Pharisees and with the Romans who killed him 
with everyone. His life matches the message he brought, which is why we're focusing on this, which is why there is so much at stake in our relationships. Because for you in this room who, who are a follower of Jesus, would your friends, would your family, would your colleagues say that your love for people, your love for them, your relationship with them, looks like you coming as an infant in vulnerability? Looks like you coming, not sharing just words with them, but your very existence? Could they see the sacrifice that you talk about in Jesus? Could they see that in how you love them? And for people in this room who are not followers of Jesus, I just want to challenge you to say, can you point to another story, to another person, where the message of salvation so deeply identifies with the Savior, his or herself? The message of salvation so deeply matches, it's as if they are one with the actions of the Savior. Jesus didn't just say, I love you. God didn't just say that I'm going to be with you no matter what. He actually demonstrated the full depths of that by going unto sin and death for us. Which is why I want to end today and invite the worship team back up with a story about Jim Baker. <laughs> Jim Baker, when I was in seminary, uh, I went to a Methodist seminary. I'm not Methodist. And so one of the things they did, because there were a lot of Methodist churches um, that were dying out, is they put young, spunky, vibrant seminarians in them. <laughs> and if you would be willing to go, uh, they would give you a, a nice, hefty scholarship for it. So I ended up interning one year uh, during my schooling at Wendell United Methodist Church in Wendell, North Carolina, home of the Carolina Mudcats, double-A baseball team. <laughs> and I met there Jim Baker, one of the first people I met. I cannot adequately describe to you Jim. The first thing you'll notice about him is that he's a giant man with a giant smile and a laugh just like Goofy. <laughs> Literally, he's like, oh, 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 oh. that's how he laughs. He has the gentlest eyes, the kindest hands, and the warmest speech. He was born in Wendell, North Carolina, and he's never left. He's lived there, been married to his wife for a long, long time, raised his kids there. He knows every single person in Wendell, North Carolina. He knows all the shop owners. He knows the businessmen and women. He knows the homeless who live there. Every event that Wendell United Methodist Church put on, Jim was the first person to sign up. He volunteered at everything, soup kitchens, Walkathons, our youth group that had four youth that I led. Jim was always there. He was in the second row every Sunday. And I kid you not, y'all think I cry a lot. He cried at every sermon. He was so moved by this love of God. 
And it was, it was so interesting because often, because Jim knew everyone, new people would show up at the church and everyone would be like, who's that? Who knows them? And you'd see Jim Baker run into the door. <laughs> be like, hey, so-and-so, welcome. The best was when the homeless showed up for church and everyone's like, who, who knows them? There goes Jim. Hey, Harold, you came. I still remember when we went on a youth retreat and Jim led the time where we washed each other's feet, the foot washing that Jesus does with his disciples. And Jim took off his socks and shoes and he had the crustiest toenails I've ever seen. And he talked about how in the kingdom, whoever's first is gonna be last and that the last are gonna be first. And as he did so, he washed my feet and I washed his and I did everything within my power to not cry. Because when Jim Baker spoke about the love of Jesus, every single word pierced your soul because you knew that this was a man who was not saying just words. None of them rang hollow. This is a man who had given every breath of his life, every day, to know his Savior more and to love his Wendell, North Carolina town as best as he could until his dying days. When you put up a photo of Jim Baker and you put up his relationships, the garb, the, 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 the way he communicates his message of life to the world, I guarantee you it matches 100% or as close as possible. He's still a human. I saw the love of God in him. Guys, we're focusing on relationships because I want Hope Brooklyn to be a church full of people like Jim Baker. I don't want our relationships to look like society. I want people to see us and be like, whoa, they're not selfish. They're not narcissistic. They don't isolate themselves. They're not self-promoting. They don't hoard resources. They're not indifferent to the needs of their brother and sister. They don't wither in conflict or lie and deceive. They don't promise love, but it's actually a pretext for their own needs. They actually live according to the truth we see in Jesus. Because when I talk to people who are not followers of Jesus, and this might be you in the room, inevitably one of the first reasons they give is they're like, I love the story of Jesus, but why do his followers seem so different? And that's also part of the story because we're not putting our hope in ourselves, but in him. But it also provokes something in us to say, why? Why do we seem so different? What would it look like to focus our energy on what God has said and to focus on how God has come to pour ourselves into him, to push into him, to make that relationship first and allow it to shape every other relationship. So that when the hardships seek to press God out and return us to our default, we remember that God came to us as an infant. Therefore, we come to the world as an infant. That God loved us so much, he was willing to not just give us a message, but to give us his very flesh and blood and life. We came not just to share 
a good story with you. We came to give you our very lives because you are beloved to us. What if Brooklyn said about Hope Brooklyn, look how they love one another. Look how they love one another. That's why we're doing this series. And that's what's at stake. I want to look out and see a room full of Jim Bakers. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, there is nothing within our power to accomplish what we just talked about. We cannot manufacture that love. We cannot manufacture those types of relationships. The only thing we can do is submit ourselves to your love. We love because you first loved us. The only thing we can do is yield our hearts to you, God. And in every moment, listen to what you're saying and say yes, and it will be hard. It'll be a lot of elbow mechanics. It'll be a lot of little things. But when, give it time, give it a year, give it five years, we'll look back and we'll see the fruit of a life, the fruit of relationships that embody the depths of God's love, the depths of your loves that does not love us, Jesus, just with words, but with action. Would that be said about us, God? And would everyone in this room, no matter where they feel like they are, would they open up their hearts to one thing you're speaking to them right now, Jesus? Ask them for one thing in their relationship with you or with others. Ask them. And I pray you say yes. Let's just take 30 seconds and ask Jesus, Lord, what would you say to me right now about my relationship? We are works in progress. We are not finished, and you're not finished with us. But Lord, as we sing this song of response, would you tell us how deeply you love us, and would you give us a step so that we don't continue to isolate ourselves from you and from others, but instead we push into you? Because we want our name, our message to match the relationships of our lives. Amen. To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at LizVice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.